right, everybody, welcome back to the Crypto 101 podcast. Uh, it's your host, Bryce Paul, joined as always by my notorious compadre, Mr. Aaron Pizza Mind Malone. Uh, Aaron, reigning from the foothills of the South, Texas. How's it going? You know, Bryce, some people would call me crazy, uh, and it wouldn't be for my brash disposition or unapologetic honesty. It would be because I say things that they don't understand because I see things into the future where the world's going before it's there yet. I can just sense that little turn, that little first spark on the planet of something new happening. And when I try and express this, even to my close friends and family and co-investors, they look at me like I'm nuts. But being ahead of the curve is one of the best and the worst things at the same time. So I would encourage you, my good friend, who's reading in the history books uh, and looking back at the past to also dust off the, the telescope and see what's coming in the other direction as well, because that's going to be exceptionally key and surrounding ourselves with other people who are crazy, uh, like the Elon Musk's of the world who can see yes. where things are going and make the these things become trends in reality. That's going to be the the real key network. And Pete, I like where you're going with it. I think that visionaries are are good historians, right? They're they're good people who study the past as well. And we actually have uh, what I call a crypto OG on the show today. Um, A founder from, I mean, this predates even Ethereum. Okay, so everybody who's in crypto right now and thought Ethereum was just always there. It was just always existing. Um, We have William Quigley who... Was actually there before Ethereum, uh, and you know, in a, a very, very crazy turn of events, uh, said that he's been trading uh, digital assets since 1998. Um, I was four years old, and that's crazy to think about. <laughs> <laughs> William, welcome to uh, the Crypto 101 podcast, co-founder of Wax and uh, co-founder of Tether. Good to be here, guys. Can you believe uh, I was four years old when you were pioneering the future of digital assets? I know. I was six. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mr. Ahead of the Curve yourself, welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. Glad to have you here. Let's talk about your origin story when you started becoming an investor, because that's really kind of how it all began, right? You were one of the first money into PayPal. That attracted you because it disinterrupted banks. But what was it that attracted you to crypto and blockchain? You You mentioned digital assets and video games. Take it from there. Yeah. So uh, obviously you could spend a whole podcast just talking about the integration of video games into, into uh, blockchain. But um, I think most people are aware that uh, video games have uh, virtual items and there was a point, this would have been kind of late nineties where uh, there was no tradability of those items and our, our exchangeability of them. And the, in the United States, the first game that really popularized the trading of video game virtual items was a company, our video game company called uh, Ultima Online. And for uh, some of your older people, they'll remember that was a super cool game. The Koreans who always start everything cool in, in video gaming, they were doing trading of video game virtual items a few years earlier. Took a while for it to catch on in the U.S., And so my partner, who I've done a lot of stuff with over 20 plus years, uh, he actually came up with the concept of 
allowing people to buy and sell video game virtual items on a marketplace. And so he created the the concept of allowing people to basically submit your virtual item to a marketplace. The marketplace would then um, escrow it and then accept a payment. That first payment, by the way, was a company where um, I was the first institutional investor. That was PayPal. Mm. And the, the first really big market that PayPal addressed was allowing people to buy and sell video game virtual items. And so this predates a lot. This is the late 90s. Um, it turned out that the video game companies didn't really like people selling virtual items. And so over the years, uh, we had all kinds of challenges with video game companies, including lawsuits, mm. which we ultimately prevailed. Uh, but it was always a pain. So we ran uh, a very large marketplace for video game virtual items and then there's something called skins. So uh, whereas a video game virtual item is a item within a game that is used for some form of utility, a skin is a video game virtual item that has no in-game utility. It's strictly of cosmetic value. Skins seem and look a lot like what people today would think of as NFTs. So yeah. we also created the very first skins marketplace and skins became orders of magnitude bigger than the buying and selling of video game virtual items. Whereas video game virtual item trading globally was maybe 10 billion annually skins got up to over 50 billion. They would have been even bigger than that were it not for the fact that the video game companies just didn't like it. And over the years, I did lots of work to try to talk to people who ran video games and explain to them why a active and robust and liquid secondary market for their video game virtual items or skins would support and create a very robust primary market. And, and this for people in business, this should be very logical, right? right. Uh, how many homes would you sell if there was never an ability to resell them? How many cars could you sell if the secondary market for cars didn't exist? Right. So we tried, but never really uh, got the video game market to really embrace the idea that they should allow secondary markets of their items to be exchanged. So and eventually, why was, why was that? Because you would, is it just because it would um, un, it make the gameplay uneven? You know, it'd just be, hey, the person who has the best characters, the one who has the most money, who could go and buy the best items and best gold. And so from their perspective, um, did you ever see that? Or Well, now think about that for a second. For if it was strictly, so to, the brief answer is, there are as many reasons as, you know, under the sun. Right. So generally video game companies here, here's my robust interpretation of it. Uh, all uh, business people are capitalists unless you give them an opportunity to be a monopolist and then they will gladly <laughs> be a monopolist. And if you think about a video game, uh, the video game company controls that thing, right? right? It controls every single digital asset in that sphere. So, they like the idea of deciding what the prices are and who can buy and sell. And there's almost a primitive view on their part that if people are buying something in the secondary market, then they won't buy it in the primary market, mm. which I think 
there's a lot of reasons why that's just not the case, but that's their view. Um, I've always thought if Apple could prevent people from selling phones or any other thing, PCs in the secondary market, they would. But in the physical world, it's really impossible to prohibit people from uh, doing something in a secondary market. But in a virtual world, in a digital world where you control that world, like in a game, they can impose whatever restrictions they want. So I think it's more just a matter of they like the idea of having that ability. You could argue what you were saying for a virtual item, which has in-game utility. Hey, maybe that changes the dynamics. You can buy your way to the top. Um, but on the other hand, a skin, which is just a cosmetic feature, adds no gameplay benefits. So with skins, there really shouldn't be a, a concern about it. But I think it mostly just comes down to an idea of controlling. And so we were thinking in 2011, 12, 13, wow, you know, at some point, maybe we can do something with video games on blockchains. And when we can do that, no one can prohibit us from allowing these items to be traded. So that was really how we went from virtual items and video game world to, to the blockchain world was just a desire for people to freely own stuff, which you know, now it seems very obvious when you talk to people about NFTs, the first thing they say is, oh, it's great. You know, it's about ownership. Uh, but, you know, that argument didn't fly for, for 15 years or so in, in the video game world. It was just too hard to convince the game companies. Yeah, it's funny how there's a lot of ideas that are resisted for years and years until they finally become popular mm -hmm. and then they just become as accepted as bread on and butter. Um, or <laughs> So, so true. Yeah, it's very true. Now, when you came, I've been the, in, I've been in the investing business for almost yeah. 30 years and, and, and the early stage VC investing business. And, uh, you know, my, the way I frame it is, um, uh, heresy becomes orthodoxy over time. Hmm. Yeah. You know? Just over time, things that are just dismissed as not just not doable, but, but reprehensible become the way it goes. Uh, yes. In the early days of the internet, my partners and I formed the very first consumer internet venture capital firm called Idea Lab Capital. And uh, the economics of free was just bizarre to people who were, you know, a little older than us. They, they couldn't get their head around it. And what I find uh, uh, really fascinating is the very arguments that I hear uh, lobbied against crypto and blockchain, often it's backed by nothing. There's no business model. It has no legitimate use case. This was the very same thing that the main criticisms in the 90s through maybe 2003 or four that was lobbied against uh, internet companies. Like, why are these VCs backing these companies? They have no revenue model. Hell, they don't even have a business model. Uh, and eventually we all thought we would find one. It was true. They didn't have business models, many of them early on, but, but eventually we figured it out. Uh, the same with blockchain. For a lot of reasons, it's taken longer to figure it out with blockchain, but, um, eventually there'll be a lot more robust business models than there are today. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, applications of it, and you know, one of the earliest applications uh, was was actually stable coins, right? I mean, Tether was invented. Absolutely. I mean, two two thousand and twelve, two thousand and eleven. Um, 
We conceived of it. We started thinking about it in 2012. But like, again, there was, you know, there was really one blockchain, Bitcoin and its derivatives, Litecoin and so forth. Uh, You couldn't do a lot on a blockchain because there wasn't an intelligent layer yet. So it wasn't really possible to do it. But yes, the notion that there would be a a token that was, you know, quote, stable was uh, uh, was something that my partners and I really wanted because we wanted to use crypto as a currency. And uh, going back to the, you know, the origins of, of NFTs, video game virtual items, um, I said how badly it was to actually trade these because the video game companies would ban you and didn't like it. Well, guess what else was the problem? Payment companies couldn't stand the industry for a whole lot of reasons. And so just getting a reliable payment provider, uh, particularly one that would work with different currencies, became very difficult. When uh, we were running Opskins, which was the largest video game skins marketplace, we ultimately had over a hundred different payment providers. And we needed that because in different countries, different payment providers worked. Most payment providers only work in a few countries. Mm, So if you have a global marketplace, you need a global method of payment. And uh, uh, one of the unsung, but one of the most amazing aspects of Tether is, is a problem it solves. And it is a trillion dollar problem. And that's something almost no one, particularly who deals with the U.S., the U.S. dollar, doesn't think about. But every year, annually, there's about $80 trillion in the global economy. And almost $1 trillion is consumed or is taken uh, due to currency conversion costs. Every time you do a cross-border payment, someone is eating into your profits by converting one currency for another. So a remarkable thing about Tether is no currency conversion ever has to take place. And that literally is a trillion dollar of value that is being retained by businesses and consumers, as opposed to the 5,000 or so money changers that exist in the world. That's really fascinating. I never even thought about that aspect of it. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition, and it has AI self-learning chips, so the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery, and it lasts around four months, but don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks' notice, and also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the 3-in-1, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, 
Go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But it is true, and Tether is one of the most transacted in currencies cross-border today. But, the most. But yeah, when, so Tether is yeah. the most traded crypto on Earth, right? It trades $30 trillion U.S. dollars annually. Um, 50 to 60% of all cryptos traded settle against Tether. Mm-hmm. Like, like more than half of all crypto transactions settle against Tether. And, and to your earlier point about uh, how things that seem sort of radical eventually get adopted. Um, and, and this is one of those things that for your audience, I think they will get a kick out of. Um, uh, so it took over a year for us to explain what a stablecoin was. And you guys and your audience may say that's crazy, but, but this is very consistent with what I've experienced over 30 years. Um, and once something becomes normal to you, you can't fathom that that would be strange to people. And yet, um, the very notion of a token that was collateralized against some asset that would make it stable to a thing, stable to the US dollar, um, we spent months explaining this to people. And, and by the way, not to the average Joe on the street. We spent months explaining it to crypto people. They simply couldn't understand it. And um, I had been around long enough, even at that time, to not get frustrated and to realize this is just how it works. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, you mentioned stablecoins. Everybody goes, yeah, right. But remember, there was a point where they hadn't been invented. Right. And I mean, even and, now it's become and, um, very common nomenclature in the central banking community, right? A CBDC, a central bank digital currency, or yeah. one of these commercial banks issuing their own consortium of a stable coin. And, and you know, people, like you said, it was yes. heresy. And now it's becoming orthodoxy. But these central bank digital yeah. currencies are blank, right? Like, let me, let me, you fill in the blank. Central bank digital currencies are blank when you compare it to Tether, which is blank. Yeah, they are inferior Mm. to Tether. But let me, let me, let me expand that and put it this way. Uh, uh, About two years ago, a lot of, a lot of hedge funds that were getting into crypto started contacting me and, and, and asking me, people I knew, asking me for my opinion. And the question was, uh, with the rise of central bank digital currencies or the coming uh, rollout of central bank digital currencies, does that mark the end of privatized uh, uh, stable coins? Will there be no need for them? And like, uh, like uh, Tether uh, and USDC and those kinds of things. Yeah. And, and, and you know, literally dozens, uh, particularly in the algorithm category. And so um, 
Uh, I said to them, absolutely not. I mean, they could be decreed away by law, but just if you take away the regulatory aspect of it and you just say, should they coexist? Can they coexist? Is there a need for them to coexist? It's absolutely the case that they should. And uh, but but for your audience, let's break it down really briefly into there's three types of stable coins. There are stable coins like Tether that are backed against a, a fiat. Right. So a, 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 a traded sovereign issued uh, currency. Then there are stable coins that are collateralized against another token. But that token is not a token that that creator of the stablecoin issued themselves. Got it. So uh, think uh, think Dai. So Maker Dai, uh, they have a stablecoin called Dai that's backed against Ethereum, right? Those, by the way, those first two buckets, uh, backed by fiat, backed by something like uh, another well traded crypto. I think those work pretty good. Then you get the third type, the toxic type, and that is a stable coin that's collateralized against a token that the stable coin creator issued themselves. So Enter this would Luna. be <laughs> right. A freaking horrendous idea. Terrible idea. And and I knew it was a terrible idea because I knew basically the origins of Luna and I was. You, you, we talked a little bit earlier about having an appreciation for history can help you. It is imperative in crypto. It is imperative because you have to understand so many things have been tried already mm -hmm. and there's reasons why they failed. If you understand why they failed and then you see a new version and it's adjusted for that, you know, maybe that's a thing to do. But with so many new entrants in crypto all the time, they often don't know that that thing being hawked to them was already tried and didn't work. And uh, that was the case for Luna. You know, it, its origins are in something called uh, uh, Basis Token, ah. uh, which was a an early attempt to have this token collateralized by a another token that they issued themselves and they could never pull it off. But uh, so those are the three types of stable coins. And and Tether is uh, reliable. And, and, and by the way, we thought of algorithmic stable coins. That idea goes back at least 50 years at the uh, University of Chicago. Milton Friedman, a famous economist, some of you may know, he was playing with the ideas around what would become stable coins, you know, long, long time wow. ago. And um, and and an algorithmic uh, controlled currencies where you wouldn't have a central bank that's corruptible and influenced by politicians, but would just be a, a programmatic thing that would rise a certain amount each year as the economy grew, uh, the supply would rise. Uh, so we thought about that. Here was the reason I nixed it. And it's because uh, things New things are incredibly difficult for the consumers to understand. It's not because they're stupid. It's just because it takes time and energy to invest in, in whatever that new thing is. And so our thinking was crypto was so out there to begin with that if then you were going to say, and there's this new type of crypto and this thing is somehow linked to the real world, that we thought was too complex. We wanted something um, that... Um, Everybody could understand 
and, and, and had sort of a, uh, uh, a basis in what they already knew. So by taking something like Tether and just saying, every time you give us a token, that token is, uh, uh, every time rather you give us a dollar, we will issue a, a token. And if you want to redeem it, we just redeem that dollar. To us, that sounded pretty straightforward. And the notion of taking a token and linking it to another token, uh, that to us was a little too abstract. So this is the reason why we decided to go with the route we went with Tether. And I would say it's probably the reason still why Tether dominates all trading yeah. in crypto. And, you know? and you know, you, uh, me- you mentioned one thing about, um, you know, Tether, how it is a trillion dollar market of an $80 trillion kind of global transference. And there's a trillion dollar in fees that are kind of taken out. But would you yeah, also say a trillion dollar in, uh, in currency conversion costs per year? And would you say like, you know, Bitcoin also ad- attacks that same exact market like Bitcoin, even though it's volatile, you could still send it from, you know, Serbia to Argentina and there won't really be conversion fees. Or is that a misunderstanding? Yeah. And so, no, no, you got that right. Uh, so when we first, uh, we were probably the first uh, large scale website to accept crypto uh, uh, for for the buying and selling of video game virtual items. And it was that because was you know, we were really familiar with the limitations of payment technology and the problems that a lot of payment companies had with video game virtual items. We also were aware of something called chargebacks. Mm. Um, uh, for your audience, uh, a chargeback is the toxin that all online merchants have to deal with. When they accept your credit card uh, online, there is a risk that you're going to reverse the charge. The charge can be reversed because you change your mind or more than likely because it was a stolen credit card. Mm. And, uh, uh, we're not going to spend time into how you verify that the person presenting the card is who they are, but it's a cat and mouse game. It's very difficult. And so we redlined about 40% of the world. And we, we are very, very good at, at uh, trying to combat credit card fraud, but, but it's just too big of a problem. And the idea that we could accept payment from that part of the world where we couldn't accept it before we could accept a payment and instantly be able to give that person credit for whatever dollar value they gave to us was amazing. Mm. And so the first people who really used um, a Bitcoin as a payment on our site were the people who were in countries that we had redlined because payment fraud was too high and they absolutely loved it. And, um, Early on when I was in crypto, a lot of people said uh, uh, another area where I think it's it's probably a little bit too beyond the, this particular podcast, but it's it's important to point out. Uh, they would say, well, but what's the why would I ever need Bitcoin? I have my credit cards. I have PayPal. I have Venmo, whatever. Why, that's already digital. Why would I need it? And that is an incredible like us centric view of the world yeah privileged view (laughs) like right there's two billion people and i'm stretching it who can freely use payment uh, uh technologies digital payment technologies to buy and sell things uh online or across border most people they don't have that luxury and uh so 
outside of the U.S., uh, crypto and Bitcoin initially was was considered remarkable. Now, obviously, it fluctuates vis a vis sovereign currencies, uh, and that's often thought of as a negative. But we all know that if you're accepting Bitcoin and you're a merchant as as a payment and you immediately sell it, it fluctuates a little, but it doesn't fluctuate that much in 10 minutes, right? So as opposed to not being able to accept payments at all, the ability to accept a payment, and maybe you lose a little in the translation where you just basically charge a little more for your product if they use crypto, it's remarkable uh, innovation. And I think it's something that's lost on a lot of... um, People who have like a dollar centric or a U.S. centric view, but it's 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 valuable. Now, the way you solve that, of course, is you make it stable. And that's the reason why uh, I wish more people understood that they when they accept Bitcoin as a payment, they really should just accept Tether as a payment. You, you're using, uh, you know, the same blockchain technology, but you are avoiding any um, volatility in, in in the price that you're accepting the payment at. And uh, I, I, I'd like to explain more of that to Elon when he was accepting <laughs> Bitcoin as a payment for, for, you know, Tesla's. That didn't make much sense to me. If you have a choice to accept a stable coin, that's always better unless you're literally trying to speculate in the currency you're receiving. It makes a lot of sense in hindsight when you put it like that. How did you originally pitch the idea of an NFT way, way back before there were crypto. Before it was called NFTs. Or, yeah. Before <laughs> NFTs, yeah. it was like, Hey man, there's a different type of coin, but it's not like all the others. In fact, it's a one of one. What was your original explanation oh. for an NFT? And then going forward, it became this platform that we know today as wax. Well, the good news is you can actually see it on YouTube because <laughs> someone sent it to me a few, maybe a year or so ago. I frankly think it's uh, that video has aged better than most things I've said over uh, over my life. Uh, but uh, it was in 2017. I was in London at a conference. Someone videotaped it. So I know it's on YouTube. And um, now understand where I was coming from. Uh, uh, not well known, I think, today, but a large percentage of people in crypto in 2000. 10, 11, 12, 13 were video game people because, and they were from my industry. They were virtual item traders because if you were trading virtual items and a lot of that was used for payments, then um, you, you naturally understood the value of a crypto. Um, So I kind of never adjusted my thinking to that. I thought everybody still were, were video gamers. And there I am in London and, uh, there's a crypto conference and, and, you know, back then the people in crypto all looked kind of like computer geeks. So, (laughs) and they still did. And so um, I got up on stage and I said, so uh, you guys know how skins work, right? But I started to see blank faces and uh, a quarter way through my pitch, I sort of realized that the audience didn't really know anything about skin trading. So fortunately, I had some videos that I broadcast, which showed what people were doing. Um, so I pitched this thing as, hey, uh, we didn't call them NFTs, but w- what we said is basically you're going to take media files. You will link them to some uh, network, uh, 
we, you can't actually put the media file on a blockchain, but something like IPFS. And then people are going to be able to trade these media files, whether it's sound or, or, or video or pictures back and forth. And look, it will be able to migrate a lot of the, uh, uh, skins business and, and video game virtualized item business to a blockchain. Um, uh, it, it was mostly blank stares, I have to say. And uh, this might be funny to crypto people. Uh, it was very funny to me when I got off the stage. You know, a bunch of people came up to me and were chatting with me. And the conversation could be distilled down to this. Hey, man, why would anybody value something that's just not connected to or backed by anything real? It's just like like a a file that you send back and forth. Uh, they were talking about the skins industry. And I was like, do you guys realize where you are? You're at a crypto conference. That's literally what crypto is, right? It's backed by nothing. Um, so they were intrigued by it. A lot of people did come up to me and say, I didn't realize that there was $50 billion annually being traded in video game virtual items. I didn't, I didn't understand that they were actually used as a payment in countries where you can't uh, get reliable payment technology. Um, but, uh, 2017, 2018, 2019, I'm out there. We've now launched wax. We, um, uh, we also created a, uh, something that was very cool, uh, which predated, uh, tether. So we, we tokenized the U S dollar that's tether. We also wanted to tokenize sneakers, real world sneakers and create digital twins of the sneakers and, and link those to a blockchain based item. In fact, I, I explained that to a, a kid in, in the UK and he created a business around it on our, on our platform uh, called artifact. You guys oh, might wow. have heard of that company. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they got bought by yeah, Nike. You guys right? know that. Yeah. So literally we, 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 explain to them because there was a three person team there. One of the people made skins for us and this guy made sneakers and we're like, well, we'll just link like a skin to a sneaker. And what do you think? He loved the idea, but it took three years of just being out there. We had to actually launch our own NFTs because for the most part, no one cared. I was talking to the, I really wanted to make uh, NFTs out of, baseball cards. Cause I had traded baseball cards as a kid. So for two years, I'm trying to explain to the tops trading card company mm. that these are sort of like digital, but they're, they're tokenized. There's a radical difference. And uh, let me explain it. It took them two years. So eventually in like early 2020, a few people, including top started to release stuff on the wax blockchain, the tops team, by the way, we're so nervous that it was going to be a failure. We basically were the first guys to put uh, NFTs in a pack. We call them wax packs. So you open a pack, you get five NFTs randomly assorted. So there's a bit of a surprise there. Um, and uh, I was like, will you tweet out that we're going to drop this thing tomorrow? And they said no. Wow. Uh, because they were too worried it was going to be a failure and they'd be embarrassed. Uh, I'm like, really? Uh, so that we dropped that. It was like a hundred thousand NFTs. They sold out in 24 hours. And, uh, uh, I think what happened then is, uh, all these other guys in the crypto space went, Holy shit. You mean you can have virtual items not linked to a game 
because up to that point, people thought you could have virtual items, but they had to be used somehow in a game. And our view from trading skins was, yes, they're used in game, but they're also used just by collectors. And so I would say by late 2020, I started to really see people going, wow, NFTs, these collectible things seem cool. And then, of course, as you know, 2021, uh, it became mass market. And in that in that 2017 shots. video uh, of mine, I think I used that phrase. I said, uh, uh, skins or, or virtual items on the blockchain are going to be the way the mass market ultimately gets introduced to blockchain. It took longer than I thought it would, but it, but I do think that is what happened. Uh, uh, far more people traded NFTs than ever traded cryptos. Yeah, I know a lot of my uh, friends got into uh, NBA top shots. And from that, they went, yes. went down the rabbit hole. They were like, well, you know, it just makes sense. You know, I'm following all my guys in basketball. I had, they had a cool dunk. I'm, I'm going to you know save that and I'll be able to trade it around. And, you know, they thought it was cool because there was a little bit of a, you know, surprise moment when you open the pack. And then there's that rush yeah. because you get the, the rare one. And uh, it, it totally made sense with, with um, you know, all the sp- trading cards and then it really did you know pick up fire when open launched and now you could trade these profile mm-hmm. pictures and twitter integrated profile pictures people have their you know their name stored on ethereum i think you know it used to be maybe called name coin and now it's uh ens yes. right <laughs> you remember that and name coin yeah that's back to the old days right like 2013 um yeah um once uh once people started to understand that there was a fun aspect to it and understand uh, the same thing happened in the internet. Uh, The internet was this place for geeks, but as soon as people started to be able to see images, right? Pictures, it really became uh, something that was more connected to them Mm -hmm. Uh, without entertainment. You really, it's very hard for the average person to really want to embrace uh, any new technology, right? The first thing that happens with any technology, somebody figures out a way to make a game out of it. And that's usually the way it ultimately gets adopted. Uh, NFTs, the good news about NFTs was it introduced a lot of people to the notion of why a blockchain is special, right? And, and I'm talking about a, um, a decentralized blockchain or, you know, more decentralized than, uh, than, a than a private internet site. Um, I think decentralization is more a goal than it is a, um, an end state because you can always figure out a reason why something isn't fully decentralized, but, but you move towards that. And anybody who is trading virtual items and games understood the idea that your, your, your account couldn't get banned for trading, but, uh, I would I would also point out to people about NFTs. Uh, so for most people, an NFT is a it is a media file. It's a snippet of music or video or image, right? And and it's important as we think about where NFTs headed to understand that that is a use of an NFT, but it is not an NFT. An NFT basically is a is a mini computer. It is a Turing complete computer. And what makes it so remarkable is it's a Turing complete computer that you can send instantly to another person. And the recipient knows 
with certainty instantly and relatively no cost, low cost to no cost, that none of the underlying source code of that computer has been manipulated, has been changed. That to me is what makes NFT so remarkable. And that's why when we talk about them, I can say NFTs will proliferate across all industries and all people will, in the years to come, be using NFTs. Uh, driver's licenses, any form of identification will be NFTs because there are these exceptional, um, they're an exceptional thing, which I don't think there's anything else in the universe that, that, uh, that comes close to what they are. There's no other thing you have that humans have created where somebody anonymously, you don't even need to know who they are, can give you a thing. And you know that that thing is genuine at no cost. You know it with no effort and you know it instantly. Uh, that's not true of currency. There's all kinds of counterfeiting and certainly not true of, 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 of objects we put value in gold. Like you try to prove instantly at no cost that this thing I gave to you is real, right? You need to go find an assay office and, and, and then you need to make sure they're not corrupt. Mm -hmm. Diamonds, forget about it. Synthetic diamonds proliferate. And now we only know with statistical accuracy, whether or not a diamond is organic or synthetic. So um, this is a thing that can be freely traded instantly around the world where counterfeiting is impossible. That to me is why NFTs will ultimately be, be incorporated by virtually all industries that are using digital technology. Wow. I, TiVo, soundbite that one, because that's a good one. Uh, that's very <laughs> memeable, because I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we've had a, a dozen, two dozen people come on and talk about NFTs, but uh, nobody ever could give it that much of a convincing uh, sort of concrete answer as to why they're valuable. Let, let me just point out one thing about that. And I've tried to train my analysts over many decades as a VC to, to appreciate something. There is a fundamental difference in knowledge, your knowledge of a thing between you trading it, uh, looking at it, holding it, you incorporating that thing in your day-to-day -day business or in you building it. People who build stuff, like build blockchains, build smart contracts, build wallets, build NFTs, they have an understanding of that thing that's incredibly deep and multi-layered, right? And so uh, to those in the audience who are, are crypto traders, right? You're, you're in funds or whatnot. I would say build stuff using using blockchain technology, build things using smart contracts, your comprehension of, of, of blockchains, your comprehension of, of why they might be useful will be magnified a thousandfold. And, and you know what else will happen? The constraints you will put on it now become much more obvious. Uh, when, when, you know, when I hear people talk about certain things, remember 2017, the ICO bubble? Oh, yeah. And I'm going to ask you about that in, the, in a second. <laughs> everyone was going to put everything on a blockchain. Uh, uh, it was, it, uh, I think of a blockchain, this might be anathema to the audience, but, but uh, 
uh, I really want them to think about this. A blockchain is the worst possible way to do virtually anything. It really is. It's the worst possible way with five exceptions that I've come up with. Now, here's the thing. Those five exceptions are so remarkably better and superior to the way we do things in the traditional way that they make blockchains incredibly valuable and rich and useful. But most things uh, are not so good because it's this really, um, it's not a bad database, but it's a very limited database with special properties, right? And the most special property of all, of course, is what I said earlier. Uh, uh, it cannot be annotated, right? You, you cannot modify that, that blockchain based item once that block has been verified and it's stored on the chain. Uh, uh the idea of a record that is immutable is and this goes to one reason why I think it's taken longer for blockchains to become rolled out across industries globally versus the internet. It took the internet about five or six years for businesses to really start to get it. We're on what year 13 plus in blockchain and most businesses don't get it. I think it's because the properties upon which blockchains are special are super abstract properties. Mm-hmm. And they take a lot of deep thinking about, but once you go down that rabbit hole, you start to realize why certain aspects of blockchain are great and can be used for your business. But it's never going to replace the internet. The internet has its uses. Blockchain has its uses. Uh, but we do need more people, I think, more crypto uh, traders, more people who run crypto blockchain uh, venture capital firms to uh, become students of blockchain. Yeah. yeah, and there's so many different ways to, to take that. But, you know, you said there's five, you know, legit use cases. And I, maybe we could use that to inform uh, this next question. But it's like in a sea of 20,000 cryptocurrencies and hundreds of thousands of NFTs, like what do you, like William Quigley, think will be the winners and the losers? And not saying like, oh, name this coin, this coin. But generally, like, do you think that there's going to be a layer one that's super valuable, or do you think that, you know, altcoins will completely be eclipsed uh, by NFTs? And that's where all the monetary value is going to kind of coalesce over the the long tail. Well, uh, I'd say the short answer, uh, nothing will eclipse, you know, anything completely uh, and uh, we'll continue to use lots of different things. Let me liken it to when I started to raise money for uh, the first consumer internet focused venture capital firm. And I went around with my partners. We were trying to raise money. And uh, at the time there were 2000, like 400 websites in the world. Right. And uh, we thought I came from the Walt Disney company. I thought uh, the internet would be really good for certain types of entertainment. And so we would talk to these prospective limited partners for our venture capital firm. And, and, the very typical thing I would hear was this. First of all, I would hear, you know, the internet is tiny and probably not likely to grow very big, but you guys are taking a subset of the internet. So you're actually like, like that's risk squared. You're doubling down on this tiny market by taking a fraction of it. That's a bad idea. 
And then the other thing we would always hear is there's 2000 websites in the world. Why would there ever need to be another one? (laughs) And, and when you, from our vantage point, now there's probably almost as many websites as there are humans from our vantage point. We find that funny and silly, but that was the conventional thinking back then. Like it was almost dismissive. It's like, wait, you're going to try to create another e-commerce site, but there's already 10 e-tailers. Another what would you need another DeFi one for? governance token? You're telling me that's needed? Right. <laughs> and so here was my argument. I just should have been more, you know, even I was not completely convinced, right? I believed about 60% of what I was saying, <laughs> but I said, you know, uh, if you take that argument to the extreme, there should be a restaurant just called the food restaurant and they serve pizzas and tacos and sushi and Italian and Indian and Japanese. Like, why would you need a different one? Right. Uh, a retailer. Why? In fact, the old retailers back in the day, a hundred years ago, they were general merchandise stores. You needed an engine, you needed apparel, you needed bedding. You got it from the same place. Well, For a number of reasons, people like specialty focused things. In fact, I have spent my entire investment career being a sector investor. It's the only thing I like to do. I don't like being a generalist. I think the world's too complex. I think, think about medicine. How many generalist medical professionals are there? You know, not that many. Uh, the the age of the general practitioner is kind of going away. We want specialists because there's so much knowledge to learn. In fact, when we were building Wax, uh, the first uh, now what you'd call NFT focused blockchain, uh, this was the argument we heard. But there's you already have you know this layer one called Ethereum. Why would you ever need a specialty chain? And of course, the answer is because there's things we want to do that that chain, that generalist chain can't do efficiently. There will always be things people want to do that differ from what we've done before and that haven't been built yet. You know, there's the reason why there's hundreds of different wallets because they serve different functions. We were the first guys to incorporate OAuth in the Wax Cloud Wallet, where you could enter your Google credentials, your PayPal credentials or whatever. And uh, I knew there was a certain number of people who wouldn't want to do that, but there were a certain number of people who just want to trade video game virtual items. Now they're trading NFTs. You know, they just want convenience. Convenience is a very, very big driver. And so uh, I, I will exaggerate a little and say there will be as many blockchains in 25 years as there are people on earth. I think there may be a point where every human has their own blockchain. Wow. Uh, yeah. So there'll be a lot. Funny enough. And, we, we saw and, something like that on DAP protocol like way back in the day, like 2018. So yes, um, man, I've never been more inspired to become a builder myself. I'm sure there's many people out in the audience that are feeling that as well. You know, can you give us those five strong use cases for blockchain first before we forget about it and move on to other things? But also, what is the next big trend you're seeing that's just in its infancy today that needs builders to hop on that bandwagon to make it the next trend? Sure. So if you go to my OnlyFans site, I reveal <laughs> the five use cases for a low subscription of 19.99. Uh, so uh 
I'll give you a couple uh, of those five first. Uh, and, and, uh, and by the way, these shouldn't surprise anybody, but, but uh, they, they are nonetheless important. And, and the reason I thought deeply about this was because, especially when I was going to Silicon Valley in like 14, 15, 16, 17, every VC was like crypto, forget it, whatever, you know, they weren't in it. This was the first time that the, uh, that uh, the venture capital community completely missed a giant new emerging platform technology. They really didn't get it until 2021. But the first and most important, of course, is the tokenization of fiat. Uh, you'd expect me to say that because, you know, I, I, I co-invented uh, Tether. If you just judge blockchain and its utility to humanity on that one thing, tokenizing fiat, uh, right then and there, I would say blockchain has, has no apologies to the world about it being a you know useless, uh, uh, irrelevant technology. The ability to tokenize fiat is is um, it's the most important innovation in money since really the the concept of of paper money. And even Larry like, uh, Fink from and, and, uh, BlackRock just the other day said the future of all securities is tokenization. Yes. And by the way, we can't get into it now, but it's worthwhile doing. Um, uh, uh, at some point, uh, one of the big criticisms from crypto people in 2014 about Tether was this criticism. And this came from, like I said, not like people who didn't know crypto. These were from the OGs who I was associating with. They said, William, congratulations. You've digitized the US dollar, which has been around for like 60 years. Uh, what's the value of that? And that's when I realized, because they were not builders, they were users. They did not realize the fundamental difference. And I still think 99% of all crypto people do not understand the difference between digitization and tokenization. It's foundational. If you don't understand that, then you would not understand why the tokenization of fiat is such a fundamental shift in the way cross-border or um, medium of exchange is going to be done in the future. So we can't go into all of the reasons for that, but let's just say that, number one, I think that's easily justifies a $10 trillion collective value for crypto. $10 trillion. In other words, that's 10x from where we are here. Uh, the second relates to partially to NFTs, but it is the idea of, of um, a, a form of identity that is immutable and uh, instantly uh, knowable to be accurate. In this age of identity fraud and, and anonymous exchange, the idea of, of blockchain being able to bring that, uh, uh, knowing who people are or knowing what entity did what, enormous. I'll give you the third, which has not been rolled out yet in substance, but clearly we've been building for a few years, just hasn't taken off yet. And that is uh, the notion of a transparent supply chain. Uh, this became really evident during a covid if you think about it as a business, as even a big business, and all companies rely on a supply chain one way or another, you basically know from whom you buy something and to whom you sell it as a company. But 
your visibility into the details around who your supplier is being supplied from, that just disappears. And you know how you do it today? You ask your supplier to, to tabulate for you where their supply is. And we, again, we learned during COVID how, how risky that is. The idea of us, I used to be a CFO, right? The idea of a CFO being able to see instantly every single transaction, every single record uh, from the 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 molecular level of like the initial component, the screw, the whatever, the transistor through these sub assemblies to final product that you're distributing to be able to see all of that instantly. And no, no one can manipulate that data. This is very important to the global economy. It's, it's hugely valuable. And, uh, uh, and it eliminates having to us- trust other people, right? Yes. And by the way, you don't have to make all of that visible. We can have a private chain that 3,000 people or 3,000 companies use. Think about a semiconductor. You know, the process of making semiconductor technology or a, uh, 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 a lithographic machine, you might have tens of thousands of subcontractors that are part of that. You know, trying to API into their databases, do you know how complex that is? <laughs> and anyone who, who lives with that, uh, the, the, how frequently engineers update shit. So your API, no, you know, breaks and whatever. Uh, yeah, putting that all on a transparent chain, remarkable. So those are the three I would give you for, for this that are really amazing. And hopefully, uh, we'll see more of in 2015. I, predicted, I think it's going to happen, uh, that uh, all the world's major economies would ultimately tokenize their currency by 2030. And the reason was because rarely in new technologies does a technology have such superiority that there literally are no trade-offs. I don't think there is any trade-off, and that's usually what you deal with with tech. It's good in this, it's bad in that. There are none vis-a-vis paper, fiat, and tokenized fiat, or even digitized fiat and and uh, and tokenized fiat. Uh, uh, tokenized fiat is superior in all respects, and uh, uh, I think all the world's economies will ultimately shift there. In fact, the U.S. was moving forward very fast, but only recently pulled back a little. And the reason is because of, I think, a big part is what uh, Jeremy Powell talks about, uh, uh, the educational process, because consumers have now become very wary of central bank digital currencies. They have this notion that it's going to allow uh, countries to just flood the market with an endless supply of, of currency. They don't understand if you issue your own currency as the U S does, we can do that already. What it really does, it just makes it much easier to track. Now there may be reasons you don't like that, but I can give you amazing reasons with KYC and AML, any money laundering uh, laws and regulations being so onerous on businesses the ability to basically offload that because now everything can be traced instantly on a blockchain would save businesses a lot of money. And of course, the non-chargeability, chargeback ability of it 
would be very, very useful. Hundreds of billions of dollars a year is lost through chargebacks. So you could, you could avoid that altogether. These are uh, some of the reasons why I, I, I think we're going to see uh, uh, paper currency disappear. So kind of on the same on the same vein, but a little differently, a little tangential. Um, I was having this conversation with my dad this weekend, and he was like, yeah, like, you know, I'm seeing Bitcoin starting to bounce back. The crypto market's up big this past couple of weeks. And he's, he's like, what about NFTs? Like, is there an index that tracks the market? He goes, how do, how do I know? Like, you know, if, if yeah, I know Bitcoin's up, I know DeFi's up, but how do I know an NFT market? And so how would you create an index of the space? Um, has anybody created one that's successful in order for people to say, hey, I, I don't know which NFT is going to be successful, but I just want to bet on the space. Yeah. Um, think of NFTs as just like, you know, uh, they're as varied as there are sneakers or T-shirts or whatever. Right. So creating an index of them is uh, is a pretty daunting job because I don't know really what it would represent. You have what right. I call viral uh, 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 virtual plus in real life. So NFTs linked to real world items. You have NFTs that are really strictly utility based. We did at Wax an NFT for AMC movie theater chain for their shareholders to have like a, an identity card, like 600,000 of them got that. That's really not like designed for tradability. Uh, and then you have the NFTs that are speculative collectibles. So I would not find it terribly useful to have like one sort of like NFT index, but, but let me direct your people to two really good uh, sites. One is crypto slam. The other is DAP radar. Both of those have tons of data. They're not complete. Like they only scour a fraction of the wax blockchain, but, but they give you a sense of the dollar volume, the transaction volume, the, um, the number of transactions per day, the number of, of people of, of individual or individual wallets transacting, that's pretty useful stuff. So if they go to those sites and then you can break it down by NFTs for games, NFTs for um, uh, collectibles, NFTs that are just like for utility, uh, I would go there as a start and, uh, uh, and then you could look at the blockchains. There's Wax, there's Avalanche, there's Polygon, there's Ethereum. You could look at a you know, flow. There's a bunch of blockchains that are NFT centric. Um, and you could see uh, the like Wax's transaction volume. It's always the top transaction volume of all blockchains, by the way. I, it, 20 million transactions a day versus maybe 2 million in Solana. And that's because it, we have so many video games on it. Um, but I would that's what I would do. NFTs as a speculative asset followed the identical pattern of crypto overall. They peaked in November 2021, and then they went down hard. And Gen 2 of NFTs, I think what's going to really inspire that, I could be wrong, but I'm, but I'm betting it's going to be uh, augmented reality. I think it's pretty clear that whatever you want to call the metaverse and even the future video gaming, the coin of the realm for those industries is going to be NFTs. NFTs will be the principal way uh, uh, revenues are derived from those places. And uh, uh, people will 
round two, people will be a little bit more clear about what they want. You'll probably have more people who are well-known in the real world, in the physical world, going to the NFT space as opposed to just, you know, random people launching stuff. So that's what I see is going to happen in, in, you know, NFT space. And you're going to see a lot of use cases, as I said, that are non like art based. Yeah, Yeah. I, I definitely agree with that. Seeing what's being built right now, man, William, this has been an amazing hour just getting to pick your brain. If this is the first podcast somebody ever listened to, they're probably going to have to play it back two or three times to digest all that stuff. Um, but it was an amazing example of you both looking back at the history of origins of the crypto industry and also looking forward ahead of the curve of where it's going. Can you give us one last word of wisdom to leave us with just for the people who are brand new coming into the space right now in 2023? Yeah, I would say do not be intimidated by the buzzwords. Uh, I like, I think a lot of us here uh, find the crypto buzzwords quite off-putting. They tend to be used to kind of uh, exclude, not include. And so um, understand this, uh, 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 blockchains are remarkable things, but they're also unbelievably simplistic. I used to, at blockchain conferences, have people, I would instruct people what a blockchain is, but I didn't just show them what a blockchain was. I had them build blockchains and build blockchains with a piece of paper and a pencil. And I've done this at dinner parties. We have created blockchains. We've created the consensus mechanisms and we process transactions with a piece of paper and a pencil that I actually used blockchains in the eighties when I was a bank auditor, uh, they didn't have tokens attached, but I also believe blockchains have existed for hundreds of years, hundreds of years. So blockchains are really, really, uh, they're simple. They're remarkable, but they're simple. And if, when people ask me, where can I go to learn about blockchains? I actually think go on YouTube, type in like blockchain or crypto and spend a few hours every week. It's an amazing place to just get educated at different levels. And by the time the next uh, crypto upcycle begins, which I assume will be Q4 2024, uh, you'll be really well positioned to start knowing fact from fiction. What is a really good use of a blockchain? What's a poor use and what you should be getting behind? So that would be my main advice. I love it. I love uh, just the the also the sneak in of the bold hot take the prediction Q4 2024. I'm going to be marking my charts. Uh, any rationale <laughs> there uh, that you could share with us, or is that just uh, a kind of wait and see? Yeah, I, I everyone has their uh, you know their superstitions, <laughs> but mine is is I think Bitcoin. You know, all cryptos uh, is uh, correlated to crypto between eighty and ninety five percent. So where Bitcoin goes, so does the crypto industry. Up until now, uh, crypto has followed the the mega cycles. There's there's ups and downs uh, in between, but the mega cycles really are triggered by halvings. Uh, the next halving is roughly what March, maybe About 15, March, April, fourteen months away, right? And uh, Typically, six months post having is when you see the next super cycle set in. Uh, that happened right on the button in 2020. Uh, 
the crypto uh, the Bitcoin halving occurred in May 2020. The up cycle was like October. And typically it lasts from uh, uh, six months post halving for another 12 months. So 18 months from the date of the halving to the time where you peak. And 18 months from the halving, the last halving was November 2021, which was literally the peak month for crypto so far. So uh, now you can be lulled into a very small N. You know, there's only been a few of them. But uh, what do they say about a broken compass when that's all you got? (laughs) So uh, uh, I do think there's always excitement around that. And so I'm I'm guessing that 2023 is more of a consolidation year. Uh, That doesn't mean there won't be micro bubbles. And in fact, that's how I stay busy within every one of these four year sort of super cycles. There are micro cycles that drive major traction. And that's why I would say even within crypto, you want to be a sector um, like uh focused person. You want to look because every year, uh, actually every year up until 2022, it didn't happen in 2022, but, but before that every year, there was some major development that drew a ton of interest and a lot of innovation in a particularly narrow part of crypto. It didn't happen in 2022. It'll probably happen in 2023, but uh, learn and build in 2023 and get ready for the big uptick in 2024. Yeah, no, 2022, it, it seemed like we were just, everybody was putting out fires left and right, whether it was FTX. Right. And bankruptcies. Yeah, bankruptcy. I mean, yeah, 2022 is a year of bankruptcies. So thank God that's 2022 was crypto dumpster fire, right? <laughs> uh, which is why I think what happened happened. But I think we're going to be calm now. By the way, the fear and greed index, which is a critical thing I look at for sentiment, mm. uh, it's at 51. So it has not been above 50 since early 2022. Wow. So Momentum I, all the, yeah. In fact, I'm a little thinking we're almost, we have a little bit too much positive sentiment, maybe because after everything had happened, the fact that a month's gone by without a bankruptcy makes us feel joyous. But, um, I'd, but it's still, it's a sign that people are feeling a lot better. Um, for a, it, uh, it's been a while since the real cap, <clears throat> which is the value of all Bitcoin uh, valued at the price people paid for it. Um, we, for a long time, the real cap of Bitcoin was above the market cap, meaning the current price of Bitcoin collectively was lower than what people paid for it. Right. And now recently we've shifted. So now what people uh, paid for their crypto is down here. Uh, or, or is, uh, is, is, yeah, is here and the current market cap is here. So, uh, that's pretty good. So people now are back in the money with on average in Bitcoin. Maybe one reason why the sentiment has gone back to positive. Man, awesome. Well, Phenomenal. uh, we're, uh, there, there's just a, a whole wealth of uh, things we could have continued to dive into. And, and William, I really hope that you could come back onto the Crypto 101 podcast at some point maybe later this quarter, next yes. quarter, and we'll we'll rehash it from a different angle. There's probably a million stories to tell from the early days and uh, more about the prophecies for the future. So until next time, um, we, we look forward to meeting again. Yeah, good. Uh, great work, you guys too, educating everybody about what's possible. Thank you. Absolutely. All we do is just listen to the smartest guys in the room. So are, we have an easy job. 
Wouldn't trade it for anything. Everyone in crypto is a student, right? There are no experts. Exactly. Well said. That's a perfect note to end it on. And we will see you back here on the Crypto 101 podcast later next week with another great guest. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.